You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two podcast. Today's guest is Marissa Konicki. She is an advocate, not only for the disabled, but for women. She feels that we are more than what we feel and what we believe. But our episode is not only just about illness and empowerment. It's also about our emotions. It's about, well, it kind of turns into a wild romp of all sorts of things, including talking about 80s rock stars. So I hope you enjoy the show. This episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. An afternoon at the pool changed Wes's life. When he saw Jin, he knew she was his always and forever. Most nights, Wes spent pursuing his dream of landing a record deal. With Jin looking up at him, he knew nothing would stop him. His dream was fast becoming a reality. Until Mason Langford entered their world. While Wes was living his dream, he lost his heart. Now he wondered if he'd ever get her back. Available now, Love is Worth Waiting For by DM Needham at most booksellers. Hi, Vanessa. How are you doing? Hey, it's so good to see you. I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm doing good. It's good to see you again. We um, actually met on Sharifa Harding's uh, Roundtable Talk Show. We did. And I, I I saw you and you started talking and I was like, oh my God, I love her. I barely knew anything about you, but I was like, oh my God, I love her. How do I connect with her afterwards? I, and you want to know something, and, and I'm being honest here. It's like when I saw everybody's qualifications for that show that day, I was just kind of like, I don't belong here. It was like one of these things doesn't belong <laughs> here. And I'm like, but I felt fine after I started talking and everything. But it, initially, and Sharifa is just a doll and, and we've talked since then. So it's just like, it's weird how your perception will be like, oh, this is going to be bad, but it was actually really <laughs> good. And I met people from it. So, and I'm doing it again and you've done it again. And here we are. Once, so, you, once you get on Sharifa's pod round table, you just want to keep going, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's amazing. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of, of heart to be, to go live. I haven't fully embraced going live. A couple of times I've tried, I've had audio issues, but eventually Hopefully eventually you'll get there, get there. baby yeah. steps I find going live actually so much easier for me now like I have I, I have really bad social anxiety I find that it takes less time for me and less work so I can actually like you do the live you're done you move on and then you don't have to deal with it or worry about it with video I feel like there's editing and there's like intros and outros so I feel so intimidated by video I lives are easy video I will postpone I will put off I will procrastinate I will oh uh my head's hurting oh you know what the sun isn't high enough today I can't do a video <laughs> it's like you know the mood isn't in alignment See, I've done I've done video since the start and it hasn't bothered me and maybe it's because of my background but that being said I it's like the worst thing that happens is you put on your makeup and then somebody's like oh I can't do it you're like oh okay so but you gotta get in this whole frame of mind of I have to do this because when I was married I didn't wear makeup really because he was legally blind so it didn't matter what I looked like <laughs> you know he loved me for me and that was it and that's the you know the purest form of love you can have I guess but afterwards it's kind of like okay now I have to get back to normal life you know I so for me it's interesting that you bring that up that you wear that you that you put makeup in with the normal life because I so I stopped wearing makeup a really long time ago I don't wear any makeup at all um because I hate the way it feels on my skin 
I, it's like, it's not, I like, there are times where I'm like, oh man, I really want to have lipstick, right? I'm like, I love the way that looks, or I love the way an eyeshadow looks, but I can literally feel it on my skin and I just, I can't. Um, but it's interesting that like you're, I'm curious because now your, your, your thought is that now that you're going live, you've got to wear makeup and things. No, no, I misunderstood what. Uh, when I go live, I when wear you makeup. Go live. Oh dude, you don't need to wear makeup on your lives. In the real world, I don't wear makeup. I will be, and my, and, and my friends are just like, you really should dress up. You're single. You should be, you should look, have your face on and everything. And I'm just kind of like, you know, you either like me for who I am or you don't, but you know, I am 50, I'm 54 years old. So I have some bags and I have some wrinkles. That's why it's like, when I go live, I'm going to wear some makeup because otherwise I'm going to, I'm pretty pale. So, you know, I don't want to be fish belly white on the camera and then going, does she have features? So, <laughs> Is there a face there? I'm not yeah. sure. It's just kind of moisturize me, you know, Dr. Who reference <laughs> there, but you know, it's not that bad, but I'm pretty white. So it's like, you know, I, I, being pale, it's just, yeah. You know. <laughs> I dyed my hair blue for that reason. Nobody notices anything else. They're just, that's why I did it. It's like, no one notices anything else. So if you have enough weird things going on, people don't actually see that you have a face. Well, the, the, that's, <laughs> that's a good, that's a true point. The, the problem with me is I used to, I used to love dyeing my hair all sorts of colors, but I have a lovely thyroid condition. Oh and my, yep. so my hair, besides being baby fine all my life is now thinning. And to top it off, experiencing grief which they don't tell you about your hair you lose hair yes nobody tells you that nobody tells you that's that's one of the signs of grief no but yeah so it's like I can't really do anything outlandish I went and got my hair cut a year ago and this lady's like oh we're gonna dye it a dark red okay and I went to her specifically and I said look my hair is thinning I need to do something with it okay we'll make sure she dyes this, this dark auburn red it was pretty red but then she's styling it and everything. She cuts it really short and she looks, she goes, oh, there's a bald spot. No shit. No. That's why I came to you. <laughs> like, that's what I told you. She's like, oh, well, we can use some hair chalk or something. I'm like, no. Oh, I was, dude. I have never had a hair meltdown in my life. You, you must have been so mad. I, I went to my friends and my other friend comes over and she had even never even met my other friend. And they're like, it looks good. I'm like, no. It was just, yeah, I was, I was just, uh, it was bad. It was bad. Oh, and dude, I, I would have been furious. I, you know, I actually... The, I do not, I'm not a fan of stylists that don't listen to you when you're trying, when you tell them what it is you're looking for. Um, once upon a time, years and years ago, I went to a stylist who was just really not listening to what I had to say. And it wasn't, you know, it was really just, I mean, honestly, it was just hair color. That was, I reached a point of time where I was like, eh, it's just hair color, no big deal. But at the same time, it's like, you have to listen because you don't always know why someone is telling you like what they're telling you, like, because you were giving her the information she needed to be able to have you leave feeling amazing, but she didn't listen. And I think that like, that's such an important thing. It's just, it's just listening. Well, and I think also why, I mean, most likely, you know, a year and a half now, I was not even six months out from my husband dying. Oh, so wow. it's like, I'm trying to make myself look good. I have a publicist at this time and I, I'm being told I'm going to be doing these things. So I need to make sure I look good. And here you've done this. So, and I, I was about to have pictures taken and, and I made the pictures work. So it doesn't look bad. Those are my promo pictures. But at the time it was just, it was ridiculous for me to be upset by it. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, live and learn. Some people that is a major crisis for all the time. 
So I get it. I get it. Um, so we were talking a little bit before we got on camera because you you have fibro. I do. And you have a flare. And we were talking about how sometimes you just have to stop and take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And where the conversation was going is that we were talking about the fact that if you stop and take care of yourself, society looks at you as being a deadbeat or lazy. And because we've had that ingrained in our heads, it kind of comes to a whole new meaning for us that I'm lazy. It's not, I'm, and I had a conversation the other day with owning your feelings. Um, because in our language, we say, I'm angry. I'm lazy. We don't say I feel. Mm-hmm. So we take ownership of this, these emotions and they weigh us down even more. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think we, we feel, I think you're really interesting. Uh, I love the idea that, you know, words matter, right? And I am angry. I am lazy is more like of a judgment call. Like I am a lazy person. Right. And so now you're, you're sort of almost like I'm putting this thing down that says, this is what I am. I am lazy. I am angry. And you, by say, by saying it that way, you almost trap yourself in a box. You trap yourself in the box of feeling that way. Absolutely. And, and I think that's something that we need to, I think it's generational and, and it still carries on today because if someone, if someone is having financial difficulties or whatever, and they have to go on to public aid or welfare or whatever, they're deemed lazy. And that's not really the case. I mean, especially now with the economy, we have people that are working three jobs that can't afford things, but you're deemed lazy. If you're it's on food stamps. So- it's absolutely, you know what you're and like, this is something that is so close to my heart because I have so many of my of people that I work with um, are people who are women with chronic illnesses. They are caregivers to, um, you know, someone who is ill or mentally ill um, or children, but they have a lot going on, like a, so, so many things going on. And it's often costs more for them to like put their kids in daycare than it, when they would earn from a job. So these are often people who can't, cannot actually work a job because the the systems that exist in the world right now prevent them from doing so. Um, and they do the only things that they have been, the only tools that they have been told are available for them. They take advantage of those tools and immediately, like you said, now they receive that judgment, which is then they then internalize and feel like, that like I am less than I am taking from people or I am lazy or awful, which only makes it harder for you to climb out of it. And I think that like over the last couple of years, working with my working with the women that I worked with, I've found that, you know, there is a astounding number of overwhelmingly qualified, brilliant, driven women out there who at this very moment feel like lazy sacks of bleep because can I swear on this um yes you can yes they feel like absolute shit they feel like the lowest of the low because they're not um they're not adhering to the 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 thing that they were supposed to do like when you're a kid you're told that this is sort of how you're supposed to grow up what's supposed to happen you grow up you get a job you have kids there's just a way your life is quote-unquote supposed to be and if your life doesn't match that then you are, there's something wrong with you. There's, you're off, you're lazy, you're, you're messing it up for everybody else. And, and that is a really big problem. Um, it more, I think the problem really a lot is our approach right now is that we really need to, as a people, which is why things like your shows are so important is these are the conversations that we need to be having so that women 
especially realize that um, that um, the it's the programming. There's nothing wrong with us inherently. There is a, ser- a structural belief system that we have been given that we're just accepting is true. And it's time, for, I think we, we, need to be, we need to be given an alternative. We've never been given an alternative. Like, okay, either I do this job or I'm lazy. No one's ever given us a third option to say, okay, what is your third option that allows you to be successful, not lazy, and also not working this full-time job? Well, and, and here's the thing. This isn't something that's new either, because in 1991, um, I had met somebody, he had two kids, and the two kids came to live with us. And they were my, they were four and six. So one of them was not a school age and that's fine, but it had to come to a point where, okay, I can go to work and I can make $200 a week and turn around and hand it to daycare, Mm -hmm. or I can choose to stay at home and be a mom. And here's the other caveat to this. Um, And, and it was kind of one of those things we had already started the, they weren't in daycare anymore, but they had gotten new kids on the block doll. So, you know, this is the time frame. <laughs> they got boy, new kid, boy, new kid Don block dolls. And they had Skipper and Courtney because they were all excited. It was Easter. And I walked by their room and I hear the little girl giggling. And I'm like, what's going on? And of course, the youngest one's going to rat her sister out easily. Not even a thought. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? It was Michelle's idea. Okay. So what's going on? Michelle wanted the Barbies to have sex and take them to Naked Town excuse me <laughs> excuse me so of I course <laughs> of course i'm like take the little girl honey you take her i need to find out what this is all about well somebody at daycare said that sex is when a man lays on top of a woman naked okay well that's not exactly how it is and we're not going to go into detail because you're way too young but you know you shouldn't even be thinking about those things at this point Naive, yes, but, you know, so they didn't go back to daycare. And the, the cost, here's the, but long, I'll wrap this little part up. The fact of the matter is, so I did this for four years. Only side job I had was as a disc jockey. So I was on a weekend jock. When I decided to go back into corporate America after I left him and I'm going back, I went to college for a year and I'm going back to corporate America and I haven't had a corporate job in five years. And the big question they looked at was my resume because I had this hole in it. Mm-hmm. Well, where have you been? What have you been doing? Why haven't you had a job? So I could explain it away that I was taking care of kids and that was okay, but they still didn't look at me as a qualified candidate. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you get an entry-level position. It doesn't matter what you've done before. This is what you get. Yeah. And it's partially because you're a woman. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you started at a deficit because Mm -hmm. you're a woman, you know, actually. And I think for me, that's actually one of my biggest missions right now is that I'm, I, I think a lot, almost all of us start this way. We start off believing that we are further back if, because we're women and God forbid you have a plus one plus, you know, your plus one, um, if you're a person of color, plus one, if you're LGBTQ plus one, you know, like there's all the chronic illness, like there's all these plus ones. Some of us have like so many plus ones, right? God forbid you have those. But the the real issue here that really hurts me is the fact that we believe it. Like, so I'm curious when you went back into the workforce at that time, how did you feel when, like, did you feel when they were asking you those questions, did you feel like it doesn't matter what I say? Like, I'm not going to be good enough. Did you feel like you weren't good enough? Or like, what was, do you remember? 
at that point I had left my husband with $50 and I had given him my car and I was staying with a friend and her mom. So I would, I didn't, I don't think I really felt, I think I was just happy to have that job. And I have to be honest, I was on the other side of, so my corporate career, eventually I became a claim supervisor and that involved hiring people. And I remember my male boss telling me, well, you're going to have to be careful with people that have children because that's a problem. Because sometimes if they, you know, looking at their work history, if you're looking at their work history and they have, you know, you're contacting the other employer and they have a lot of absences, that's a problem. For me, near the end of my tenure at my career, because I had had illness, I had taking care of my grandmothers for Katrina. So I missed time from there. My company said, oh, we're going to create, you can't be a supervisor anymore. We're going to create a position for you, which basically, and this is exactly how I felt about this said position that was going to be created. It was a way to get me out the door. They weren't going to acknowledge that I was sick. They were not going to acknowledge those things. We're going to create this position for you. Yeah, it was a BS. And I knew it in my gut. I knew it. And I was overstressed. I wanted to quit. I did not quit. Fate intervened. My husband shut a recliner on my foot. I had to have ankle surgery. And out of that job, I went. Because finally, my illness and the PTSD from that place caught up with me. And that's the thing. When you're, when you're in a toxic environment, you don't realize the stress it's putting on your body and the PTSD that takes place. Because everybody's like, oh, well, it's got to be a war. Sometimes your job can turn into a war. Oh my God, you are so right. And I can't even say this enough. Like I have PTSD from my childhood. I've been through incredible amounts of trauma. And we've talked about that before. And I've also been in abusive work relationships. And I can tell you as somebody who's been through both, the impact it has on your body is no different. It's not different at all in terms of one will kill you just as easily as the other one will kill you. And it doesn't matter that somebody doesn't have a gun pointed at your head. It's the same feeling that's there. Um, and I think it's really hard for people. And I'm really glad you said that because it really gives me the opportunity to say that, like, there are so many people who diminish their, their in-work environments that are toxic, just like you're talking about. And they're having those feelings. Like, I know what you're talking about, that you're sick all, like, in addition to your chronic illness, you've got, you're sick all the time from the, the job itself. You're, you start to swell up, you're tired, your sleep is not making, you're not feeling you sleep, but you're not rested. You're always exhausted. And you just, there's no, you don't, you can't take joy in things. Possibly food doesn't even have any flavor anymore because it's like, ugh, right. And a lot of people are like, well, I should feel lucky to just have a job or I wasn't in a war or they don't, they're not willing to recognize it as PTSD because of that misconception that, you know, this is only something that you get if you've had like some major, major traumatic event in your life. Right. And the truth is, is that being abused at a workplace is a major traumatic event in your life. Yeah. You just, and there's no, someone of my friend, Jenna says this, she's amazing. She's an MS advocate. And she taught me, there's no comparison here. She has MS. I have chronic migraine. She's like, I really hate this, like chronic illness competition. She's like, it doesn't have to be a competition. We can all suffer. We can all suffer. It's great. And we can all heal, yeah. you know, we can all heal together. And I think that's really important. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up because it, it's something I think that a lot of people don't give themselves permission to believe that they could actually be suffering from PTSD. Well, and PTSD, like you said, I mean, I had childhood trauma. My childhood trauma is not the same as your childhood trauma, but we all experience things differently. And that, that's the thing. Like you said, it's not a competition. One of my employees, an employee that I am, I had to, they put him in my unit so I would find dirt on him to fire him. So yeah, that's always, corporate America sucks. <laughs> but anyway, I had pneumonia and I came back early. I came back a week early because they needed me back. So I, I, 
I'm still sick, but I come back and he comes in my cube and he's like, you're not doing well, are you? And I was there from six in the morning until 10 that night, which oh, is just gosh. insane. Plus working the four other days. And guess what? I was sick the next week again. So he comes in my cube and he's like, you know, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm still sick. He goes, you know, no job is worth your health. And that is the truest statement ever. And I, I think we all, you know, everybody gets so wrapped up and, and the about money and it's and then money is the most you know money is an important thing it pays bills it keeps us alive and everything else but the amount of stress that money puts on us and then you have the toxic job that you know as a supervisor how do you feel that somebody tells you oh well you're only allowed to give well everybody can say we're going to give you a three percent raise but you're not going to give anybody a three percent raise this is what you're told when you're writing a Mm -hmm. review so you're already setting up your employees who are looking for I've done this outstanding job. You're already going to say, you're getting 1%. That's awful. But you have to put on a brave face and go, okay. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's toxic. It really is. I think though, as you get older and I feel like you, you also, obviously you, you, obviously you decided this too, cause you're not at the job anymore. I think we start to get more in alignment. I think a lot of our illnesses and stuff comes from the fact that we're in jobs or positions or running businesses that are not in alignment with who we want to be as people. And like, how we want to show up. And I feel like a lot of that, like when you're in that moment where you can't give someone that a raise and you know that this person's amazing and you're like, I, this is just not fair. I don't think this is fair. Right. And at some point, you know, I think we, we get to, it's like, I'm only here for so long. Like, do I really want to live? Do I want this to be my every day? You know? And like, I think most of us, we get to this. And I realized this when I was, I was listening to your podcast, uh, that was listening to the, the podcast earlier. It was, um, uh, uh, but I think this happened with everyone that I, that I listened to, but uh, specifically, I think it was, um, was it, Sir? no, it was Taylor, a uh, Taylor who said that he had, you know, he'd reached this moment in life where he was like, I just, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I feel like, I think this was the last one or the one before that was the, that was the one before it was yeah. the one before, um, where he was saying <laughs> he didn't wanna, that he didn't necessarily want, he's like, I don't want to live like this. And I think for a lot of us, we get to that point where you you're, you're tired, you're sick. And you realize that, not only are you sick, so I have fibro, right? Let's say. And then on top of that, you're adding this extra stress from work. So you can't actually even begin to heal yourself because you can't unravel all the things that are, that are wrong at this moment. Right. So I think we get to a point where we're just like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not living like this anymore. And you start to like eliminate things. And that happened for me in my, like when I hit 40, something changed inside me. And it was just like, I don't give a fuck. I just don't care anymore. I am going to die one day and I want to enjoy every minute of my life from now until the day I die. And I want to help other people enjoy every minute of their lives from now until the day they die. Right. That was like my big thing. That's when I think I, I was like, I really made the decision to not work for people or with people. And I actually ended up leaving a job, a, a, a client who was, you know, it was significant six figures. Uh, it like, we we're talking like six to six figures a month. Um, I was like, I don't want to do this because uh, it was not in alignment with how I was, what, how I wanted to live. That was hard. That was really hard to do that on principle. So. I mean, t- t- <laughs> go ahead. No, no, I'm, I'm good. I was, I was, I was smart. I was like, I was so smart about it, guys. I didn't just run away. I had a plan, right? But just like, don't just say, dude, in principle, I'm just going to toss this on the floor and burn it. Just for anybody listening. I don't want you to say like, you just burn everything and walk away. No scorched earth here. Yeah. Don't burn <laughs> the bitch down. Sorry. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Taylor, Taylor's the person who was talking about the word, wording of feelings. Yes. He was, that's who was talking about that. I was trying to remember his name and I couldn't. The other thing about my job that I realized, so during my tenure as an adjuster, I had to judge people on their bodily injury, on their pain and suffering. 
Now, during this time, after I became claim supervisor and whatnot, I fell and I hurt my back. And it was in that moment, speaking of alignment, that as I'm doing my job, I come to a realization. It's like, what gives me the right to judge anybody's pain? What gives me that right? And that's, that's, that's what that job is. You're sitting there looking through medical bills. You're sitting there looking at what they went through and you're supposed to put a dollar figure on that. And that is toxic in itself because what gives you that right? That so. is intense. Like I, I just, you know, would you say that? Like, as you're saying it, I'm like, yes, of course, that's what you guys did. And then I, I don't think I've ever really thought about it. Like you're saying it. And I'm like, I understand. I feel like I really internalized what it is that you guys well, did. And, and I'm like, the, the worst, <laughs> the worst thing is I'm, I'm an empath. So there were times when I was talking to people that I could pick up on their emotions and it was not easy. It was not easy to listen to somebody's story about how horrendous an accident was. You know, you're not trained for that. They don't give you any emotional support to talk to somebody about, hey, yeah, you got to get the facts. And like, same thing with a police officer. You have to get the facts of the accident. And in some cases, you know, I have a guy who swerved out of the way of snowplow and the snowplow took out the passenger side of his car and killed his daughter. And I'm supposed to, that was my first death claim. Oh my God. Nobody's trained me for this. So you, you end up. So when I look at my body and, and the inflammation markers and everything I have, it's like, it's a lot to do with just how I've lived my life. And the fact of the matter is, and I know this is true for you, people will look at you and say, well, you look perfectly fine. <laughs> I, you don't look sick. I, I have a handicap placard and I use it. And I, I mean, I shouldn't be announcing that, but I do. But I know I get looks in the parking lot like, how dare you? Mm -hmm. No, you don't understand. If I would go walk and I use a scooter in the store because I will end up seizing up in pain. So but you're going to judge me. So go for it. I've had, so I've had friends get judged. Like they, you don't look sick. Honestly, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what here. This is, I'm just going to give a PSA out to anybody listening. Don't ever say to somebody, but you don't look sick. Just don't, just don't say it. It's just, it's not, it doesn't make anybody feel better. It's like, well, gee, thanks. I'm glad that I feel terrible. Um, you know, I think honestly, the, the best thing <laughs> that I want to hear is dude, it must blow to feel so sick and look so good. You know, it's like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like that. Okay. That I'm like, yeah, you know what? It absolutely does. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I she, mean, she, they struggle with that too, where they don't you they don't actually use the placard because they're afraid. This is, this is where we're at right now. They are afraid to use a placard that they need because they don't look sick and they're afraid because, um, uh, one of them was actually, somebody came up to them in the parking lot and said, why are you using this? And then they had this, they literally had to justify why they were using it. I'm like, how like you are getting, it's almost like you're getting attacked again. You know, it's like, you shouldn't have to justify that kind of thing. Um, so absolutely. I think it's, 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 it's tough. And that's the thing. You don't know what's going on with the person that has that placard. If they have that placard 10 to one, there's a reason for it. I mean, people would sit there and think, oh, well, it's for your husband. No, it wasn't for my husband. Granted, he could have gotten one, but it was for me. And if my doctors deem that, then they deem that. So, but it's, it's amazing how people will not look at invisible illness as a real thing. They just look at the book cover, as I, I have talked about, and don't read the blurb. They have no knowledge of who you really are, but we're going to judge you. Yeah. 
And we're taught to we're we're taught to be like that from a young age. You know, I when I so when I think back, actually, it's interesting because when I look back to my childhood, so I grew up in Pakistan and my mom had really bad migraines growing up, and this was in the 80s. And um my I and I've she's been gone now for 16 years. Um, she died of liver cancer years and years ago. But Sorry. my it was it was a tough time, but you know, it's you know how it is. But um, so my dad tells me about about, you know, the, the time when she was sick. And I remember it vividly because obviously I was there, but I had to, my sister and I really had to take care of ourselves a lot um, because she was so ill, but it was a time of life where no one understood chronic illness, like at all, like in any way, shape or form and migraines at all either. And so what they would do in those days was, well, you're sick here, have an opiate, right? So they give you an opiate. So they gave her a ton of opiates. So my mom was just always on something for her pain. Right. And as a result, I, in, I didn't understand this as a child, but as an adult, now I can look back and see the kind of impact it had on her where, you know, she was sleeping nine to 10 hours a day, you know, and then at night as well, she was barely ever up. She was always in pain. And then of course, if you're on opiates all the time, you have withdrawal. Now you just have to be on the opiates all the time. It was a really, really challenging time. And I, um, and I watched that. Um, and then when we came, we came to the States for a brief period of time for about, um, three months. And I, we were living in Pakistan. We moved here, um, for about, for three months in 1988. And my mom got a job at Walden books and she couldn't keep the job at Walden books because she was so sick and it was so, so hard for her. Um, and so you and I grew up in that same time period, right. Where those were the belief systems that we, that we had. Um, and I think that over the last, and this is, I think so interesting. I think you and I have talked about this a while back that we have grown over the last 30 years. The world has changed dinosaurs, fun fact, no longer lizards. Now they're birds, but we still have not changed our perspective on chronic illness and what we believe about ourselves. We're still holding on to that 1980s belief. Sorry. Oh no, no worries. But, uh, but yeah, so I think we bring a lot of that with us, but I think what, we, and the, the problem is, is that we do not intentionally, we, we think it's um, self-indulgent or too, cause like when you're young, you're supposed to be seen, but not heard. You're supposed to be humble. You know, don't, don't think too much of yourself, that kind of thing. So as adults, right, we're here. And if we spend like self-care, bad word. And when we think of self-care, we think of self-care, like, you know, pedicures and manicures, but what we don't think about is intentionally reflecting upon how you approach yourself and the things that you say to yourself and your belief systems and challenging some of those. And we don't often challenge our belief systems. And that is part of the problem because we brought our belief system from the 1980s. Well, you know what? In the 1980s, we were all smoking and you were not cool if you didn't smoke. Well, we've learned since then that that's not good for you. I didn't sleep. What? Thought, you were I, so uncool. Well, oh no, my God. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was out of Ann's Goody Two Shoe songs occasionally. I mean, I don't eventually don't when smoke. I went to. <laughs> When I went to a bar, when I got a little older, I would smoke, but I never smoked. I puffed and it was just, I could have had candy <laughs> cigarettes and it would have been good. But anyway, go well, ahead. We digress. <laughs> I can't even, I can't believe this. You were one of the smart ones, dude. I smoked from the time I was so 1992 because I was in Pakistan. You smoked from the time you're like seven, right? But I was, I think 13 or 14. So I started smoking then and I smoked for about 15. It's awful. Kids don't smoke. It's disgusting. Um, but uh, we've learned since then that it's bad for you. We've also learned. And I think, honestly, I think there's a great awakening happening in the last five years or so of so many women realizing what we've all been dealing with. Because I don't know if you're noticing, there's a real huge number of women right now all talking about this same thing 
I think we're all tired of feeling this way and we're being more intentional about how we talk to ourselves and how we approach ourselves so that we can heal. Because before this, I don't think we were even giving ourselves the opportunity to heal. Um, and the issue, and I know I'm like going on forever, but um, is also that we don't give ourselves the opportunity because you go to the doctor and they ignore you and they're like, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. And it's exhausting to advocate for yourself. But I think that one of the things that's happening now is that there are communities developing around these ideas to where we can force the issue. We can make these conversations happen, which I think is really, really important. Yeah. And I mean, there's two things that you I want to touch on or play off of what you said. You know, the medical community looks at thyroid and they go, oh, well, it's in normal parameters. That doesn't mean it took me getting in a car accident, going to an acupuncturist, her pulling all my blood work to be diagnosed with a thyroid issue. Dude, thyroid issues are really like they do not do enough. They do not do enough to diagnose them. No. You're like the fourth person I've heard this from. And I went, I went like eight years without with having all these symptoms. And I would go to my doctor. He's like, "Well, your thyroid's normal. Everything's fine." It's like, fine. Um, uh, "No." And so finally, when I brought the paperwork to him, he's like, "Well, how'd you find this out? Really? <laughs> that's that, that's your takeaway here? Is how did I find this out? <laughs> Gee, thanks." Um, and now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, the opioid crisis. You know, in a way, the opioid crisis, actually, it was a saving grace because, okay, my dad, he was addicted to Percocet because of back problems. So after I leave my job and I'm having the chronic pain, I get sent to a pain management doctor. You know how that goes. Go to a pain management doctor. Okay. So they're like, we want you to take, I think, two or three Flexeril a day. We want you to take Vicodin two or three times a day. And I'm very highly susceptible. I could take one flex roll and it will stay in my system for two days. I will be hung over for two days. I have always been very low tolerant. So I looked at my husband and it's like, okay, I have to make a choice. I can choose to be bombed out of my head. Same thing with my sleep doctor. It's like, he's like, he did a sleep study. He's like, your mind never shuts down. You're always going. So I'm going to give you this medication. It's going to keep you awake. I said, what about going to sleep at night? Oh, well, then I'll give you this medication to go to sleep. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, okay, so I'm taking uppers and downers. No. So back to the pain management, it's like, okay, so I have to make a choice quantity over quality. Sure. I can live in pain and granted that messes with your head, but I can live in pain or I can choose to be bombed out of my mind yep. and drool and not have a life at all. So what is better? So I deal with, I, I will tolerate pain. I will take painkillers if I have to, but I'm not going to get addicted. And that, that was the choice I made because it's very, they were giving, when we got in our car accident, they gave my husband, I don't like 300 pills of Flexerol. And like he come, we go to the pharmacy and he checks out and there's like three containers of Vicodin. Oh my God. And, and he's like, I, I mean, he never used all of it, but it was just kind of like, how? You know, why do we have an opioid crisis? Because they were handling it out like candy. Yeah. That's so, honestly the solution to everything is here. Have some drugs. Right, right. Oh, you have a mental problem here. Have some drugs. Don't worry about therapy. Don't worry about getting to the root of it. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I just want to say, I'm a big believer in taking drugs, big believer in taking drugs, but I think there's also a problem with like, I think there's the, the two, I think you and I, I just, I just want to say it's just because I like to be clear is that this, I think, is an issue more of, of people using drugs to solve, to mask a problem as opposed to using drugs to actually solve a problem. You know, yes. like, I, so I think it's a real big difference. Like, for example, I think if you're using drugs to mask the problem, it's no different from using alcohol. So for me, 
when I couldn't get help that I needed, I just drank. I drank a lot. I was the most functioning <laughs> drinker. Oh my God. I could drink a lot. So functioning, so functioning and very able to accomplish insane amounts, insane amounts. And I think to myself, if I had actually been cared for properly and like had proper health care, uh, wow. Imagine what I could have accomplished without all of the alcohol. Well, I probably and, kept a Svetka in business for like 10 years. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm not saying that, you know, medication is bad. I'm not saying that if you need, you know, effects or you need Prozac, you need whatever, Zoloft, then take that, but work on the real problem too. I mean, my husband was not a man for therapy. He, he, he knew I was in therapy. He, he was okay with that. He understood that. And his parents, his mom had gotten sick and his dad was okay. And I'm like, he would come to therapy and sit in the car. I'm like, <laughs> you're here anyway. <laughs> well, exactly. I'm like, come with me. You really, cause I knew once his, cause he had siblings. I'm like, once his parents take ill, he's got a, a he's sick. He has this thing that he knows he's going to die eventually because of his illness. So he needs some help. And I know he needs some help. He's on a fixer. So I'm like, you need to come with me. No. I said, come with me. Like the fourth time I asked him, he's like, buy me a fish sandwich and I'll go. Okay. <laughs> all right. So I bought him a fish sandwich. And the thing is, when all was said and done, his parents passed, went through the whole gamut of that. He said, he looked at me and he looked at my therapist. He's like, that was the best thing I could have done was to get help. Nice. So he, he saw a therapist after that? He saw my therapist. That's amazing. Me, still, oh my God, yeah. how wonderful. But yeah, I mean, but I will say, you know, when near the end, he quit because we were doing it via phone. He quit participating, but he already knew at this point that his days were numbered. Mm -hmm. And so he had taken a death and dying class in his 20s. So he was kind of already in his own mindset and I wasn't going to force him. Right. So. Like it's, it's at a different at that point, you're sort of like a different state yeah. um, in a different position. Uh, I want to actually, so therapy, I want to touch on that. Like therapy for me has changed my life. And, and I've, I've been in therapy for 20 years off and on. Um, it's not just like, it's, it's not just a tool, I think for me just to like heal, but it's also really, I use it as a great business tool. Like there've been times where I've not had somebody to talk to about with my therapist and I'm like, okay, let's talk about this project I'm working on. Let's talk about this course that I want to create. And like, she'll work with me on my target audience. And like, it's, my therapist has become almost like, and I, I changed therapist once every five or six years, but I want to just open this up to all of your listeners. So I have a thread on my personal profile that you're welcome to go look at. Um, I'm in Massachusetts and uh, finding a therapist right now is like really, really hard. It's like so hard for people and they're really struggling. So what I've done is I'm just reaching out to people that I know who are therapists who are taking clients and I'm just putting their information up there and being like, so-and-so is taking clients. If you're here, if you're here. So if you're looking for, uh, for looking for a therapist and having trouble, just my personal profile. my name is Manessa. Um, just go, that thread is there and you can probably find a therapist there. Or just let me know where you're at and I'll see if I can find a therapist for you. Like who is still taking clients. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's therapy. The first time I saw a therapist when I was nine after my parents split. So I've been in and out of therapy for 40 years. <laughs> Therapy's the best, dude. I love it. Well, it, it helps you reframe things. And I mean, sometimes you think you've gotten past something and then, you know, ultimately it's come back to rear its head. And, and that's what people don't think about emotions. It's an addiction. We get used to certain ways we live and nobody ever sees it that way. They're just like, oh, well, no, it's just like an addiction. It's like putting on that comfy sweater. Somebody's abusive to you. You're used to it. And it's like, oh, okay. 
this friend, I, I feel like I've known you forever. Oh, well, maybe there's a reason why. <laughs> sometimes it's a good thing, but sometimes it's just like, mm, no. Old habits coming back to roost. Yeah. Old habits die hard, don't they say? They do. Oh my God. You know, I, the way I like to think of it is a tributary. So like we spend our whole lives being a certain way. If you think of your brain and your life as like just a river, right? We spent our whole lives being a certain way. And that abusive thing is like one tributary that spent 30 years building. So it's a deep rooted tributary and you can build the new one, but you're still going to kind of drift back to that one that's already deep and etched in stone. Um, And I think for me, one of the, like I said this the other day to somebody said, oh my God, can I just stop with the self-development work? I'm so tired and so done, you know? And I, I, I know you felt that at some point where she's like, oh my God, I'm so tired of working on myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the truth is, is that, like you said, I think, oh, who was it? Oh my God. Who was it that you were talking about the other day was talking about fear. It was, it was one of your pod, one of the podcasts just talking about fear. It was, ah, I think it was, um, it was, uh, uh, Sharon, she was talking about Sharon Valenti was talking Mm. about, um, about, uh, fear and working and working through those fears. That's really, that's really the key. I think I lost my train of thought when I was trying to remember Sharon's name. I was like, wait, Sharon, what was what was I saying right before that about you were, you were talking about self-development that you get tired of working on yourself. Right, right, right. You get tired of working. You get tired of working on yourself because there's always something to like um, something to like um, to work on. But I think the thing that happens is you actually get comfortable with understanding. Oh no, this was also Trevor. And you get comfortable with the discomfort. You recognize that being a business owner, having a chronic illness, these kinds of things are uncomfortable but you get to a point, I think, with acceptance where it's like the discomfort doesn't feel bad anymore. It feels energizing in a way that's like, because I think initially when you start working on yourself, everything feels so scary. But then after you've really worked on yourself for a while, the new things you discover are more like, oh my God, look at this cool, fun thing that I've discovered that's an opportunity for healing. So I'm going to feel better in like a month or two months rather than, oh my God, something else is broken with me. It really does, I think, change your perspective. So I think it helps to like recognize that you're never fully quote unquote healed. You're never going to be over it. You're going to find these things like my old, my relationship with my dad, it keeps rearing its ugly head, you know, like, because We've got 44 years of freaking baggage. Like yeah. it's gonna, it's gonna happen. Yeah. Well, and I mean, how many times will you hear somebody say, Oh, well, you just gotta get over it? Well, you know what? If I don't, <laughs> I don't. Screw yourself. No, I don't. Um, but there's something I want to touch on because you were talking about fear. There's a guest, I I don't know the exact air date yet, but I had recorded the interview the other day. Uh Kim Corte, she or Corte, she talks about we were talking about fear. And she says, fear basically is a stop sign. And this is how we get balled up. We get all trapped because fear is just this big warning. And we've been taught to be fear-based. But if we proceed with caution, as we're making changes, it's not so daunting. Instead of just going from A to Z. If you're going from A to Z, yeah, it's going to be scary because you're not taking any small steps. Yep, yep. You have the pedal to the metal and guess what? There's a brick wall right there, at least in your mind, <laughs> because that's how you've been trained. Because how many times has somebody said, oh, you can't do that. If you do that, you're just going to screw yourself. Yeah. Oh my God. Totally. So, I mean, it was an interesting conversation and I look forward when I share it, but because it's true, because we, we sit there and we look at the big picture that I want to get all this done. But when you start to do it, you look and go, oh my gosh, I can't get all of this done especially with a chronic illness. 
Oh, dude, I have the best system for this. Like this is actually, it's almost like, it's almost like you knew what I offer. I'm just saying. So I actually have this great, it's a free system. It's, it's, you can just get it at hustleproofyourlife.com. Um, but I, 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 a few years ago, I realized what you're saying. And I realized that I was not making any progress in the way that I was approaching my business because I was doing things like saying, and most business owners do this. will say things like, I need to set up my email, right? I need to set up my email. Setting up your email is 30 individual steps. And that's actually literally 30. I know because I broke them out into the steps and I actually have like the whole, every single thing you need to do from researching it, identifying the, the software you want to use, buying the software, setting it up, every single little step you have to take, right? So when you sit down to do, you're like, okay, this is my to-do list. And you're like, do email. That is, you don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that is. When you do, you just say do email. I don't know what that is. That's like so many other tasks. And so what uh, my system does is it actually breaks your to-do list down into three separate lists. So you have your first list, which is your dream list, which is everything that you want to work on that is going to be a month or more in the future or something that you just keep moving from day to day to day that you haven't yet done. Just put it on the dream list. That becomes the list that you look at once a month because that's more your growth and progress list. It's good for when you hit a wall. Then you have a triage list. And on your triage list goes everything that you think about that you need to do whenever you think about it. So you just keep adding things to it electronically, but that's not your master to-do list. And then you have your to-do list that you own, that you put together at the beginning of the week, but that just becomes what you're doing. It's very intentional. It's very thought out so that now if something happens during the week that you're like, oh, I need to do this thing, it ends up on the triage list so you can prioritize it appropriately. And what that does is it actually allows you to slow down because instead of then jumping on everything the second it comes up, you start to give yourself time between tasks, which then gives you time to think about what tasks actually take. It's because you're now sitting down and really you have um, broken up time, taken out time for yourself to decide what you're going to do in the week. Like, okay, now I'm going to look at the triage list and pick these are the things I'm going to do this week, right? So with which is very different from the way we tend to approach it, which is usually like, oh, I have a lot of things to do. Let me grab this notebook or this receipt or this envelope and just write all the things that I need to do. And now you have a long forever list that you need to do. And your brain looks at it and says, fuck this. I'm not doing any of it. Right. It's like, nope, not doing that. So the system that you can get a hustle proof your life, what that's going to allow you to do is break apart your list into smaller pieces so that you don't feel quite so overwhelmed with all the things that you need to do all the time. And I think that we were taught, you know, here's, here's the caveat. Let's go back to the eighties for a second. Yes. You know, if you had to do a research paper, you had to go to the library. You had, to go to <laughs> you, had you, you know, you, you didn't have this instant. I love the internet. Don't get as a writer. I love the internet, but I still go and investigate with real books, but especially because some of the stuff I do right in the eighties. So I have to go back to that, but we were taught that you know, you have to take time, you have to do this, you have to research and you have to do, you have to plod, you can't take a break, you have to keep going. But the problem is now, our lives are like on crack, comparatively <laughs> speaking to the 80s. So it's like, you start to do something and, oh, wait, the phone binged. I got, I gotta, I gotta do that now. Wait a second, I gotta go over here. And when do you stop? You know, when do you stop and, and look at, like you said, priorities what what needs to be done right now and I can take one of my guests and a couple of guests actually have talked about instead of taking the big project on head-on taking small bites mm -hmm. and we weren't taught to take small bites we were taught to excel you needed to excel you need to be on top of your game and that's what's important but we can't live like that anymore we can't 
Um, did you, you know, um, it reminds me of something when you talk about that, um, cause we can't live like that anymore because like you said, it's nonstop, like it will never end. And, um, did you watch aliens? The second one with, uh, I'm pretty sure I did. I'm pr- I, I don't like scary things. I, I <laughs> and aliens is really scary. Yeah. I've seen it. Um, because my husband liked it, but I don't, I'm sure I've watched it. But so there's this scene in it where they're in the car, they're in this armored vehicle and she's ridden over one of the aliens with his, uh, his, you know, acid stuff. And then the acid came out and it eats up all of the wheel, the rubber on the wheel. Right. So now she's, she's trying to go into the, the so fast, but the wheels are turning and it's smoking. And mm. the guy says, Ripley, stop. You're just grinding metal. Now you're not moving in. You're not actually making any headway that's what happens to us is we start grinding metal and it doesn't actually. And so whenever I have that visual in my head, so anybody listening to this now who've seen aliens, now you'll never be able to get that vision out of your head. When you start to get to that point, that's your alert that it's time to like, you need there's that you are approaching something too quickly. You're just grinding metal. What I've discovered is, is that people who approach business that way are not making progress in their business. They're just doing a lot of stuff. And the thing is, is no, no, none of us gets into our business to just do a lot of stuff. We get into our business to, we're trying to build something in particular, but you can't build it without intention and time. And we try to, we think that if we hurry or if we speed it up, if we try to just create that sense of urgency, that that will make it come faster. And I got, I want to hear what you think about this, because I got to tell you one of the most horrible, rude, obnoxious things I ever realized was that it doesn't matter how fast I want it to happen. It just doesn't matter. There's a pace that you have to do these things at and the results will come, but you trying to do it faster isn't going to matter. It's just, that's actually going to take longer. It's going to take longer. And a lot of the times you'll make errors with it. You know, yeah. it's one of those things. And dare I say, my mom was, my mother would sit there and go, okay, you need to do this. And I would start doing it. And if I didn't do it quick enough, she would grab it and say, I'm going to do it. Okay. So that, that kind of sets you up to, you have to be be at her level. And of course, if you make a mistake, that's a whole nother thing. But the thing is, if you're going quickly, you're doing something quickly, you're going to miss those steps. You're yeah. going to, something's going to happen to trip you up. So sometimes it's better, you know, somebody once told me, it's like, you don't want to be an overnight success. You want to do slow and steady. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Because you know what? There is an equal and opposite reaction to any action. So if you are an overnight success, whoo, shooting up, then that is going to be followed by a, right? So what goes up must come down with that same speed and velocity. Well, and let, you know, some overnight success aren't really overnight success. They work their asses off. It's true. 25 years later. But, you know, like, (laughs) like if you become TikTok famous, that's an overnight success, a modern day. But, you know, one something that you talked about, and I've talked about this before about Britney Spears, we put Britney, you know, on this pedestal, we, we put her up there and then we picked at her till she collapsed and you know and everybody's going like oh no i didn't but i did. did and i was awful i i regret i regret some of the stuff that i like honestly i'm ashamed i i'm i am ashamed i said things and i re- i'm not that person anymore but we gotta own it dude we all said shit mm-hmm. and so and we all wanted a dare i say a piece of her haha play off her song but it's <laughs> the truth when you I are a, when you are a celebrity people want a piece of you and whether it be the the audience or somebody else i watched a, a bass player on stage sit there and great band and he screwed up and they actually booed him and he walked off stage came back 
started playing again, got the guitar screwed up again, and they booed him again. And he left. He did come back again, and he did get it straight, but they, it was like Viper Pit. They were like out for blood, and it's just like, look, if you were at your job and you had a screw up, <laughs> you know? You don't want them booing you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, your boss is going to tell you stuff, but don't be an ass. But we do, and I mean, and it's funny because I don't know if you've seen it, but yes, we've had the free Britney. But guess what? There are people now sitting there saying the same nasty stuff again. She's going to have a breakdown. She's going to be. T- You're doing it all over again. So fortunately, I was just going to say, fortunately, this time I didn't even know people were doing that. I can't believe people would pick at her now yeah. or pick at anyone now. Honestly, I feel like I feel like you said you said something earlier. You said don't be an ass. And I think that what I learned from what I learned about Britney, what this whole Britney Spears thing was be kinder. You don't know like. I want to shave my head. Right. And so for years, I keep saying I, every time I do, I'm going to go full Britney Spears. And I, the other day I was about to say that. And I I stopped because I was like, you know what? That's just unkind. Like that was a very suffering person. And it's not even funny because it's not funny. It's just not funny. Right. And um, so I think that like um, we are in a world where we, I think we need to be kinder in that way because you're absolutely right. We try to pick apart anybody does anything. You pick them apart as quickly as humanly possible. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with deflection. You don't want to look at yourself and it's just so much easier to pick apart somebody who's up there, you know? Oh, I agree. And I'm going to say this right now. You have Will Smith's book back there. Will has been a big target lately. Oh, because of him talking so much about him and them and Jada. I love that. I love that they're talking so openly right now. I love this man. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean why why can't we be honest about things why do we have to keep it all bottled up if their relationship works and it's an open relationship if they have you know what does it fucking matter you know it's their life you know what i love about it actually here's what i love about will smith in particular and this book um i was surprised to find that have you read it yet no okay it is, the, here's the thing it is so relatable I surprisingly, I relate to Will Smith. Like, I was like, oh my God, I really relate to that. Like, but, and I think a lot of people will. And that's what I thought was really great about it is that I think that, you know, we were talking earlier about therapy and how some people don't do therapy, right? And I think that he's clearly gone on a journey in the last few years and he has clearly done a lot of work. Like, you can tell the kind of work he's done just by the way he talks, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that Jada has the Red Table talk show, which I think is amazing. And that he's doing this, it's, they are really showing, like really giving you a complete insight, look into what could it look like to have a healthy relationship? What do some of these conversations look like? What does it look like when you're working through some of these things? Because I don't think a lot of us have really good role models and we all have to figure it out ourselves. And I feel like it's really actually quite brave of him and Jada and their whole family to share and be this open and raw because it's the blueprint that a lot of people don't have right now. In turn, I feel I think everyone should read this book. Every business owner should read this book. I think it's a really important illustration about the things that we go through as business owners emotionally and like the mistakes that we can make and how you can overcome them. What's ridiculous? Reason we brought it up though is there was a petition recently. I know, I get know. him to shut up. And it's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> so I think it had 16,000 signatures last I checked. I don't even know. I just, I just I, really. You know, I think, okay, if it's it's not your thing, you don't have to read it. And this is the biggest thing about most of the internet. If something is something you don't like, then move on. (laughs) That's so true. 
move on there was a show back uh and i mentioned this before called good christian bitches and it was they they took they called it gcb it was a dramedy it was about texas christian women who love guns and it was over the top camp the women the mom, mom million moms or whatever i don't even think they watched it same thing with the playboy club which was set in the 60s they took it off the air because they had a petition oh yes okay number one the playboy club it was set in the 60s so some of the but there was no sex it was more <laughs> from crime drama and good christian bitches well they were just being over the top but it offended their moral sensibilities well screw you screw you i'm sorry call me feisty and, and i know some things we shouldn't have but be a parent if you're worried about your kids seeing it be a parent you know who says cardi b i love that woman oh my god cardi b is amazing she so she you know her she had that song WAP right and I think that it uh, somebody said to her they said do you want you know this is not fit for children she's like yeah I don't let my kids listen to it she's like that's your job yeah <laughs> she's like it's for adults yeah I mean I remember when the hearts all I want to do is make love to you came on oh I was just one. thinking about that so I love that song yeah my my uh my youngest stepdaughter was about seven and she's singing it in the car at the top of her lungs and I I lowered the volume and I said don't ever sing this in front of your grandmother please <laughs> and that's tame compared to some of the stuff today but be a parent I mean you have to be a parent we the problem is and I know people can come at me and that's fine but you have to take some ownership of what your kids are watching and don't say, Oh, it's Disney. It's okay. Disney's got some serious problems too. A lot of my issues mentally come from Disney. Oh, you mean Mary? Did you want to marry a Disney prince? Uh, you know, I had a, I actually, you know, who I really wanted to marry was Judd Nelson from, uh, well, I didn't want to marry him. I want to sleep with him. Judd Nelson from the breakfast club. Yeah. I was really, a, I was very whorish as a kid. Like even like, like from the earliest age, I just wanted to sleep with everybody. So, uh, so that was really more along the, <laughs> the direction that I was going in. Um, oh, well, why does that make you a whore? I mean, I hate to say, I'm, I'm going to just put this out. There. That's actually we a really were, good point. I, you know, we, what? Were, we were raised to believe that if you're a girl and you were sleeping around, you're a whore, but a boy doing it, well, that's just a guy Stud. being a guy. Stud, look yeah. at you. Yeah. I mean, what, because we can get knocked up. I mean, it's the same damn thing. You know, it's funny. You should say that. It's actually, I never questioned it. I never questioned using that term until like, cause I've always said I'm the, I was, I mean, obviously I've been married for years and me and my husband, but like um before that actually we had the question once I said I asked him I said which of us do you think was the bigger slut when we were younger he goes probably you and I'm like yeah I know probably me but you know that's why like was it Amber Amber oh my god Amber I can't remember her her last name Amber but she's amazing and Amber Rose she does the slut walk I think Mm -hmm. she hasn't done it since COVID but I love I love that I think um I use the word because it's the only way to describe it but I think it's really I'm glad you called me on on it so I'm gonna need to think on it um, but I do like the idea of reclaiming that word and just being like, cause I I'm, you know, pro ho. <laughs> it's, it's nothing. It's just, it's one of those things. It's like our words, we go back to what we were talking about earlier. Words matter. matter. They really do. I mean, you know, when, when somebody says, and some, I'm going to say the word, it's not when somebody says fag, I think of a cigarette from England. Now I don't think of the derogatory term, you, you know? know, what's, when I was in my twenties, I can't say the word. I, it's not, I can't actually I apologize. Say it. Um, and, and I, 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 it was, and I'll, I will be really honest with you when I hear it, it made me, it hurt me to hear the word, which is I so apologize. like, I, and I, and I understand, I understand that you were saying it to make a point. So I totally get it. Um, 
but when I grew up in Pakistan, so that is what they called the, that is what you called cigarettes. And then when I was in the States in the nineties, they had a term for girls who hung around with a lot of gay guys. It was called an F hag. Right. And so that's what all my friends called me for years. And there was about a three year period where I went through and had to, and really like worked through, like not using that word anymore. Why do I like, cause the world was changing and I didn't understand how something that was okay before was not okay now. And that kind of, so I had to go through like a whole process. Um, but words matter because like you just said, right. You said the word meaning the cigarette. Cause you think of the cigarette. Cause you spent a lot of time in, in uh, overseas in London. Um, but if somebody hasn't spent a lot of time overseas in London, the word itself, right. We just illustrated right. it. It has the physical impact. Right. And I think that's also important is the knowledge that for not just that word, any word, right. Is that people can say words that will have a physical impact and like, um, uh, you know, jolt the cortisol in the, into your system, but you may not know that that happened. Right. So I say a word and you're suddenly triggered in some way. Right. Um, and I think that that's that. words matter. Yeah. And I apologize. And no, it's not so much that I sp- I've never been to London, but I write a lot. I thought about- you said you were in London. I, I misunderstood that. My bad. I, I write and do research about London. London. Everything. That's and, what it was. My bad. And, <laughs> and I have the London coffee mug, but <laughs> I created actually, a whole life for you, by the way, in London. <laughs> I would like to go to London. And I bought my passport last year because I was going to go to London. And yeah, I have not gone to London. So. Well, well, I mean, the traveling right now is probably, yeah. I actually have been thinking about going to India. I've been really, um, really into find, getting more in touch with my roots. And like, I've been working with my therapist a lot on my race and that kind of thing. And so I want to go to India, but I'm like, probably not going to happen for a couple of years, but dude, as soon as we're able to travel again, London, India, we should just start traveling, dude. <laughs> and, and, and I do apologize. It did not mean any, anything bad. I know. You know what? I actually, I was wondering, I, I was like, oh my God, I hope she doesn't feel, feel bad. It was just like, I mean, we both can agree that the word used in derogatory terms against someone who is homosexual is disgusting. We yes. both agree on that. Yeah. I mean, but as a cigarette, it's, I imagine that people, that is a transition they had to go through as well. It's like, what do we, how do we do that? And I don't know if everybody's made that transition. Maybe some well, more people are still using it. And, and I mean, the other word that is questionable is, is it's it's in Christmas songs. It's in the Flintstones and that's gay. I mean, is that a, is that a word that people don't use? Um, it's been used as a derogatory slang occasionally, but I mean, you know, we'll have a gay old time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I actually, I, I, I wanted to spend some time learning about that. And like the, like, I actually, I have never, I have not done that yet, but now you've reminded me that that's something I want to spend some time on. But it, um, here's another big thing. And you're, you were, I don't know if you were over here because it was the early eighties before the AIDS epidemic. So it was the late seventies, early eighties. We had a diet candy called AIDS. You did not really. Yes, we did. A Y D S, and they're ads, and you can look at. There's an ad that says "Lose weight now with AIDS." Oh my god! It's bad. It's bad. Holy shit! I had no idea. Yes. Yes. Whoa, that is like some serious, like fucked up irony, but like really morbid humor there. Like I'm really into dark humor, so on one hand, I'm like, oh my god, this is fucking bad, dark, hysterical. But on the other hand, I'm horrified. So I'm like, I've got both of those things happening at the same time right now. I remember growing up because my mom was in diet culture, so and they would advertise the candy all the time. So I remember, and then you know, all of a sudden, but then again, we have ISIS. You know, we have the goddess ISIS, but then now we put it to a militant group, which really pisses me off. Very annoying. Um, you know, it's it's just how do these words become? How do they change? You know, let's go with the word "fuck" fornication under consent of king, but yet it's a really dirty word. (laughs) 
but at one time I mean, it wasn't you know it's um it's I was you know I could actually talk about this for like ever because one of the things that I studied when I was I so I was an archaeologist for a while and when I was um doing anthropology one of the things that we studied and I found this really interesting was the appropriation of words by colonists and then like the reclaiming of words by marginalized people and how like words they have a life cycle a life they, they have a cycle right where it belongs to one community then another community often will steal it appropriate it do something with it and then the marginalized community will take it back and reclaim the word and so I think that like that I that I could talk. I would love those kinds of conversations. I mean, we could for like an hour. We could do another like two hour conversation on that. That that would be fascinating because it's always something that you know. It's always amazed me. It's like, well, how is it a bad word? It's in the dictionary. And why did why did it become a bad word? I mean, that's just it's something that's always just ate at me because it's like well, you can't say that. Why not? Why? Because it's not proper. Because it's not legal. <laughs> My thing was always, I don't care what's proper. So one of the things that always bothered me was not being able to wear jeans at work. I'm like, why? Why can't I wear jeans at work? Why can't I have blue hair at work? Why can't I have tattoos at work? Like, I am still amazing at my job either way. Like, what does, what do any of these things matter? What does it matter if I swear? I didn't get a job once because I was told that I lacked gravitas to get the promotion to that higher level. And I was like, I am literally one of the best people that you have. And what that, that was the moment where I realized that I needed to, that I was going to, that some, that something big was about to happen in my life and that I wanted to be this way. It took me eight years to change into this person here that I was like, I know the direction I want to go in because I realized that if I wanted to stay in corporate, I would have to change. I would have to become something I didn't want to become because like you were just saying, there are arbitrary rules about things that are proper things. Somebody fun fact, everybody, all rules are made up. Somebody made them up. There is no, this is not a, fuck being a bad word is not written in the cosmos. No. <laughs> no. Well, it's funny because my mom would never say it. And oh, really? Mom, wait, then my mom got a job as a guard at a juvenile detention center my senior year. <laughs> I have never heard my mother say fuck more than anything in the world. It's like all of a sudden one day she comes home and she uses it. I'm just like, What? <laughs> Where'd that come from? It's like, goddamn fucking kids. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> Language. I'm kind of surprised by this, but okay. I mean, I'll be honest. I've been cursing since eighth grade. I was a Lutheran girl. going or I went to Lutheran school, but we were cursing. But when I was waiting for the bus across from the public school, there was like a kindergartner outside, kindergarten first grader cursing his ass off. And I'm just like, wow, my mom would have like, Killed me if my <laughs> mouth would have been that bad that soon. Did your mom uh, wash your mouth out with soap? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, gross. Sam, my mom used yeah. sandalwood soap. I um, it was awful. Ugh. I like the smell of sandalwood, but not after that. No. My mom swore like a freaking truck driver. I learned all my swear words from her, and I was like, by the time I was five, I knew all of them. So one time, I my uncle wouldn't let me go and stay the night at my cousin's house. So on big chalk letters, I wrote, you know, my uncle is a bastard. Like on, I wrote it like on big chalk letters, and then I went to bed. Yeah, I got a big spanking when my dad came home. And I, I, des- I mean, like, I know we don't spank anymore, whatever, but yeah. dude, I deserved it. I totally yeah. did. I mean, back then that you, you, you that was got you spanked did. or kneeled in a corner, which was always good for your knees. Yep. Um, the first time I ever got busted for saying fuck was with my, took my grandmother to this warehouse in Shreveport called Libby Glass. And we're at the stoplight. This car is in front of me the driver gets out and leaves the car and gets in somebody else's car 
And I'm like, fuck. And my grandmother looks at me, she goes, what did you just say? And I'm like, because <laughs> she never really heard me curse. So it was just kind of like, no, nothing, nothing. <laughs> and, and I, and to preface this, Rick Springfield had a movie out in 1984 called Hard to Hold. And he would, the rumor was, you could see his naked ass. So yeah, I conned my grandmother. That's not cool. My grandmother was. So I'm like, Grandma, I want to go see this movie. Well, why? I said, Well, I. She goes, Well, buy the ticket. I'm like, I can't. I need you. Okay, ah. we'll go. <laughs> Don, you should not have taken me to see that. Mm, well, you know. Oh well. <laughs> Rick Springfield. Oh my God, he be still my beating heart. He was another one of those on my like uh, on my list of guys that I was like, oh, love you. I had a long list of rock stars in the eighties. I was going to sleep with. I, I was, I would have been the best groupie ever. Um, when I hit, when I moved to the States, I went and bought like Pamela DeBar's biography. I've read like all of the groupie biographies. Cause I'm like, man, I would have been the best groupie. The best. <laughs> <laughs> the experience I have with Rick Springfield is we, they played Hirsch. Me and my friend got there. My mom made us hot chocolate. I had this doctor who type scarf that one of my friends from new orleans had made me her mom made it for me and so we waited outside and we walked around the venue nobody had lined up it was general admission and the doors were open the side doors so we went in we could have just stayed in we should have just stayed in but you know being the good girl <laughs> um so we were watching them set the stage up and everything and then it's oh, like, oh we fun. better we better get out of here before we get in trouble so we went back and we were waiting in line like good people and getting almost crushed and so we finally make it in, we get front row and I put my scarf over the, the little wall with my coat. I go to get uh, a t-shirt and they rush the stage because the show starts. So I finally get back to my friend, my scarf is gone. My jacket's there. I grab my jacket. We're getting crushed. We get out of the crowd. We go sit up top in the bleachers and I'm watching and all of a sudden, I see somebody throw my scarf onto the stage. Rick Springfield <laughs> holds it up, wipes his face, and throws it in the crowd. Oh, my God. Going, how amazing. My scarf. My scarf. <laughs> yeah, it was a really cool scarf, too. I was just like, damn. Oh, damn. I want my scarf back. Yeah, no. Sweat on it. It was just like, damn. So, yeah, that was uh, the Rick Springfield. And then I realized, it was like, I'm like, Mom, why couldn't you marry him? At least he would have been a better stepfather. I could at least look at him. <laughs> you know, not that I want to lust after my stepdad, but and he hasn't aged badly. He's aged really well. Did you watch him in uh, Supernatural? No, I did not. He played Lucifer in Supernatural. And he like, I was so excited because he, my husband didn't know who he was. And I was like, oh my God, is Rick Springfield? And he's he's aged really well. His hair is nice and long. He's got that John, Ta he always had a John Taylor-y kind of look to him and now with his hair long he's like is the dark the dark oh my god the dark eyes the dark hair but yeah um so yeah i'm sorry what i'll be in my bunk uh right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i know he looks really great i find um you know it's interesting because i remember when i was younger i was i was like oh my god i because i liked obviously i thought i liked guys who were like younger in those days and i remember saying to my my sister and my mother oh my God, when I'm older, I thought I would still like younger looking men when I was older. And I was like, it's going to be so weird when I'm like super old, like 50 and still like these, you know, these young, yeah. I didn't realize I was going to like them as they get older. But I got to say a lot of those guys are aging super well. Like Mark Harmon. Oh my God. John Taylor. Like these guys all look amazing. John bon I want to look that good when I'm their age. And it's considering all the drugs they did that yeah. I want to look at. <laughs> well, look, look at Keith Richards. All things considered, he's aging <laughs> he's pretty alive. well. He's been preserved quite well. 
Dude, I think there's like a you, there's like a threshold. Either you have to do a whole lot so it kind of preserves you. <laughs> you just got it all in your system or you just got to be healthy. But then there's Paul McCartney and I'm not sure that he has aged as well. I he has not aged as well. No. I, I, I have to Did you ever watch Craig Ferguson when he had a late night talk show? Yes. And he used to have the picture of Angela Lansbury and the picture of Paul McCartney and he would say they were kind of the same. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, it's a joke, folks. I'm not judging. It's just one of those things where it's like, mm. yeah, yeah, no, I can see it. The two, I can definitely see that, definitely for sure. Um, uh, oh my god, I totally forgot. You know who I was actually? I meant to tell you this after our last call. Um, the guy that I thought aged super well because I was trying to remember um, of the people because like we've been talking about you know people that we'd met and so on and so forth. And I remember my favorite meeting ever was with Peter Wolf, lead singer of the Jay Giles Band. He said I was going to be the future ex Mrs. Wolf. Like I met him for like ten minutes, but he's in, he's so charming, and he was like I mean he was already like super old when I met him, right? And um, the man jumped on, like still, you know how he like in all the music videos, he jumped on things and did all yeah, those crazy. Yeah. He was doing that at like 70 something. He jumps on the bar and he's dancing. And I'm like, you know what? I love you now as much as I loved you when I was like 18. And I don't care that you're 70. I just, I fucking love you right now. <laughs> Best day ever. <laughs> that That's pretty wild. I mean, but hey, kudos to him for being able to do that stuff. I know, right? I mean, I remember my friends talking about meeting Weird Al. They had gone to see the monkeys on tour and Weird Al rode the escalator by jumping on the railing. Huh. Like he's actually in- that strange. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> this good was being able to get up on the railing. Well, this was the late 80s. <laughs> Fair. I'm not sure he could still do that. He'll still do it. <laughs> he would try at least, but I'm not sure he could still do it. It's funny because there's a meme going around about if you ever think you could do something, Look at Trent Reznor from back in his like first promo pick. And he looks like he's in a boy band. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll have to find it and send it to you because it's too funny. It's just like you, you print your, you know, you picture Trent Reznor as dark and brooding. Oh yeah. Yeah. It looks like he's in a freaking boy band. That's his, my husband and I were just listening to sin. Uh, mm. And uh, cause we're doing our, we were putting together our top 20 songs of the eighties and he picked terrible live from that album. I picked sin. It's such a good song. It was, I, I only didn't pick it. Oh, it was a, so good. Right. Um, but when you look at him now, right. And I remember looking at him back then and being like totally into him. And I look at him now and I'm like, Oh my God, he's just a dude. Who's a dad. Like he's just a normal dude, dad. Like it's, it's, it's really weird for and, and when I listen to the music and now I think to myself, I, why was I so angry? Like I was so angry, but I'm not that angry anymore. Like I don't even have, I was so mad, but I'm not angry. And I think to myself, I wonder like if he gets on stage and he's like, dude, I'm just not that mad anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> Henry Rollins, same thing. Henry Rollins <laughs> yes, always yes, angry. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and then you have to think about, okay, well think about some of your rappers. I mean, they've been angry too. So does it still translate or are you just kind of mm. yeah that's what makes me wonder like are you just like dude i'm fine i'm just not that upset anymore <laughs> <laughs> like what kind of music do you make then i don't know i mean it's weird because yeah you you kind of you kind of evolve as an artist and you're how do you sing the, the heartbreak song when you're in a happy relationship <laughs> right exactly like oh my god you left me it's like no you're right here and i love you so <laughs> <laughs> and we're happy <laughs> and how are you still writing country songs when you're happily married 
Because what, seventy five percent are about losing your truck, your wife, or your dog. One of your dog, oh, dude. <laughs> so anyway, we are digressing. So, is there anything that you would like to add that we have not covered? Oh my gosh, we talked about like all of the things. This is like so much fun. Um, you know, I think the thing that I really want to add, and I just it's a reiteration. It's the reiteration that um, that. If you, as a woman um, with chronic illness, or if you have, believe you have any other framework that is, if you're, if you have a framework, anything other than like the atyp- the typical white male framework, and you feel like you are starting at a deficit, I want to remind you that you are someone with years of experience. You're amazing. You're brilliant. You're intelligent. You have grit. The only thing that's holding you back is your belief right now in yourself. Um, and through these kinds of podcasts and through surrounding yourself with people like, uh, like Dawn and, and podcasts like this and following me on Manessa.com, you will come to see in yourself the same joy and beauty that we see in you and the same potential that we see in you. Um, you are, you have limitless potential. Do not let yourself, don't, don't tell yourself a story. Otherwise, whether you're sick or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You still have as much to offer. That is for me, the most important thing. I, I, it hurts me that people feel like they are less than because they are sick or a different color or, or part of a different group. And so that's like, I think the most important thing is just uh, that there are people out there who believe in you and people out there who will help you. And then to piggyback onto that, don't live up to other people's expectations. The only expectations that matter are yours. So I hashtag that, fact, huh? Hashtag fact, dude. That yeah. is like, absolutely. It's your expectations that is like so brilliant like who cares what other people want it really doesn't matter they don't have to live your life but but the thing is we're we're in great that is ingrained in us since we're so much so we look outside for validation like all the time look inside inward yeah. yeah love that that's that's really good so i thank you for your time thank you this episode of the better two podcast is brought to you by kitty mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. In the beginning, applause was his drug of choice. He felt so loved that he couldn't help but sample the buffet of women that were presented. It didn't matter that he had a wife or a daughter. His addictions became his life. When death came knocking, reality came crashing in. He thought he wanted a new reality, but did he really? My Days with the Dark Muse by DM Needham available at online booksellers. Marissa and I had a great conversation and she will be back. She is another one of those people that I've invited back to the show. And I think we can have even more fun. Um, I apologize for anybody's feelings that I may have hurt by saying a certain word. And, you know, that's on me. And I did not say it malicely. And I'm sure all of you guys understood that. But words do have power. And if we go back to what Taylor had, when we're talking about Taylor's episode, you know, ownership of words can be a problem too for us, because the fact of the matter is if we're sitting there talking about ownership and our vocabulary, then the situation becomes, well, I am. And why do you want to give words power? Why do you want to be angry? Why not just say you feel angry? I mean, you know, you don't say I am hung. I'm hungry. Well, you do but you're giving that power. But if you say, I feel hungry, it softens it. So maybe we should soften our words just a scotch. So we're not taking it on and putting it into our body. So I hope you enjoy the show as always. 
Marissa's links are in the bio. And I think if you follow her plan, I'm definitely going to tr- check this out before next episode that I talk to her so I can see if I can implement her plan and her to-do list. Um, all those notes are in the show notes. So check it out. If you have a question or would like to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at Donna, D-A-U-N-A at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at better2podcast.com. If you want to leave a review, you can do so at Podchaser or applepodcast.com. As always, if you want to catch up on the episodes, if you're just tuning in, you just discover the show, you can go to better2podcast.com and all of the episodes are there as well as all of our social links to follow. So I thank you for tuning in as always, and I hope you have a wonderful day and I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. You're listening to the Better 2 Podcast with DM Needham. (laughs) 